Jim Park has nearly 30 years of experience in the private, government, and nonprofit sectors and has successfully launched a number of financial services-related businesses. He has dedicated his career to supporting issues related to diverse communities, mortgage finance, and affordable housing issues. Jim is one of the founders and partners of the Mortgage Collaborative, which works with small and mid-sized lenders to strengthen their market power and to create innovative business solutions. He is also a founder of Housing Renaissance, an industry forum that brings top real estate market leaders. He is also serving as the senior advisor to the Board of Association of Asian American Investment Managers and in the past has served as the chair of the Asian Pacific American Institute for Congressional Studies. In 2013, Jim was the chair of the Asian Real Estate Association of America. Meet the leaders shaping the new era of credit. This is the Vantage Core Podcast. Today, we talk to Jim Park, co-founder of the Mortgage Collaborative, part one. Racism or being discriminated, I think, is a obviously it's a serious topic. And I think people have experienced it in a lot of different ways. You know, as a child, as young adult, getting kind of being taunted at or racial slurs being thrown at you. That was, you know, I'm not going to say it was commonplace, but it wasn't wasn't a shocker when you were the recipient of it. I know that's the case with many of my Asian American colleagues kind of growing up. That was sort of factor life, you know, unfortunately. And it does sort of shape how you perceive the world because there is sort of the sense that you're always not quite part of the community, right? And that you're different or you're an other. And that's the case with a lot of the other minority community as well. Or if you have, for the LGBTQ community, there is this feeling of not being a part of the society as a whole. Somehow you're different, you're excluded. So you kind of have that overlaying, I think, a lot of things that you look at and how you perceive the world in some ways, unfortunately. But, you know, I, I try not to make that the defining thing in the way I engage the world and how I work. But we know it's real. I think people have experienced it. I would say things are more subtle in many ways around discrimination or um, kind of racist statements and stuff. I, I do think things like uh, for an Asian, you're, you're kind of tall or for an Asian, you speak pretty well. I mean, is that racist? <laughs> I think it is, but it is these kind of backhanded sort of compliment that is really not a compliment, right? And so that's the kind of stuff that you kind of have to, you know, all of us, many of us kind of grew up with. And that does kind of frame out how you see things. I do think there are certain circumstances where I felt discriminated against, but it was very subtle and it wasn't overt. You know, did I not get a job because I was Korean American? I don't know. I, I've gotten situations where I didn't get a job in my early days. You know, um, was it because of that? And you always have that kind of doubt in the back of your mind. You know that you're not being judged purely by the content of your knowledge or your experience, right? You, you do, you know that. And, and that does kind of, sometimes you can let that be crippling, right? Or you can try to move past it and try to deal with it. The unfortunate part, I think, in the Asian American community over the years has been that we've, we've sort of stayed silent about a lot of these things. And we've always sort of said, you know what? Keep our head down. Let's just work hard, do well in school. And the society will ultimately accept us and allow us to move up in a kind of meritocracy. I think what we have seen in the last year, particularly for the Asian American community, but sort of the sense of discrimination and racism has been ongoing for a long, long time, number of generations back. 
and not only affecting the Asian community, but the Black, Hispanic, and other communities out there. We know that's a real thing, but I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I try not to dwell on it too much. I guess in, in many ways, but I don't know. Did I get missed opportunities? I don't know. I would say maybe I, I, I have. Um, I know people who have sort of explicitly been discriminated against. Like you know, if you look at just even on the fair housing front, right? There was a Newsday study that was done. I don't know, like two, three years ago about housing discrimination, and they sent in kind of blind testers, right? And they said, okay, were their applications accepted or were they shown as many properties and Black, Hispanic, Asian Americans were shown less properties and they were discriminated against more often on the housing front. So you know those things are happening systematically. So those things we have to actually have to kind of address directly in my view. The crazy thing is you look at all the hate crimes against Asian Americans, right, right now, it's happening in San Francisco. It's happening in New York. It's very diverse. I think there was this sort of perception that if you're in middle America or you're somewhere down in the South, that you're going to get discriminated more, attacked more. The fact is that this is everywhere, and we have to sort of address it in all fronts, right? Modern minority is a term that was, from a historical context, that was used to pit our community, the Asian American community, primarily against, in some ways, other minority communities. The idea was that and it was sort of perpetuated by, in some ways, by the white community that said, okay, this is what a minority should be. This is, if you do well in school, you work hard, stay out of trouble, whatever. That's sort of the definition that was sort of built out to pit us, in some ways, weaponize the Asian American community against other minority communities. This is the way you should be, Black community, Hispanic community. Do well in school. Do this. Do that. And, and the problem is, is that that doesn't allow people to be themselves, right? You have to fall into this kind of, you have to define yourself in terms of certain ways of being and all of that. But the modern, modern minority myth also has been, I would say, a double-edged sword. In some cases, there was this, I think, an expectation within the Asian community that you should do well in school. Or, you know, there's a sort of this higher level of expectation that's been set. But also the problem is, the reality is, as you may know, Asian communities are a very diverse community. Not everyone in the Asian community is doing great. Yes, you know, if you look at average income, household income, if you look at educational attainment, all that, it does over-index the national average. But also you have segments of the Asian community that have traditionally not done well, right? And have linguistic isolation, high poverty rate. Elderly, for instance, in New York have one of the highest poverty rates. Asian American elderly have highest poverty rates in the country. But those things just get never talked about because of this model minority myth that kind of tries to blanket us as a community into looking a certain way being a certain way. And so I think in some ways, people might have thought this model minority view was a positive thing, but I do think it, it just covers up too many of the underlying issues that our community faces that just doesn't get discussed. And I think until this recent really surge of anti-Asian hate crimes in this country, I don't think people, I know a lot of people didn't realize that the Asian community Face, I think they're literally people who never thought we faced discrimination in this country. Somehow we kind of got by, right? We're able to do all these things because I don't know, somehow we're 
we're, we're more like the white community. But the fact is, that's just not the case. We're the perpetual foreigner that's never quite accepted into this country in some ways, right? If you lined up 10 people and that's supposed to represent the world, five to six of those individuals would be of Asian descent. That's the way you have to think about it, right? That's majority of the world is of Asian descent. In the U.S., we're 6%, but rest of the world, we're 55, 60%. I mean, that's one way to think about it, right? There's more people in China or India independently than there are people in all of North America, South America, Latin America, and all of that combined, and then some, right? So it just tells you the uh, significant scope of the Asian continent and what we represent. I do think people who have traveled and experienced more things are less likely to have this feeling. I do think there is one of the things that, if you think about it, when we had the auto war, uh, the war, I guess, uh, auto war, whatever it was called, with Japan, and there was a gentleman by the name of Vincent Chin who was clubbed by two white auto workers outside of Detroit because they mistakenly took him as a Japanese. I think he was of Chinese descent. And they killed him, right, on the streets. And those two got no jail time. I think they got fined like $3,000 for killing a human being. And it tells you that the sense that because somehow we're kind of outside, we're not really part of this society, we're not quite part of the mainstream, I don't know, whatever it is, that somehow these kinds of attacks are normalized. And so these things aren't just new, right? That all the, I mean, we've seen more now than ever before, and it's, it's really disgusting and it's really sickening to see the amount, but it's not a new thing in this country. Some of the biggest lynching in this U.S. history is of Asian Americans going back 100 plus years, right? So it's not a new part of our history, unfortunately. I was born in Korea, but I grew up in Orange County. I spent a good chunk of my life there, and then I moved to D.C. I was interning in uh, D.C. in college, and I really liked the work. I think part of it was my immigrant roots and some of the struggles my, my parents went through just in terms of just kind of taking on menial jobs and just trying to make it work, starting a business, struggling with all of that. gave me a little bit of a sense that we all have an obligation to support each other, our community, people who are disadvantaged. We have to figure out a way to make sure they have a good safety net, but also have an opportunity to do well uh, in this country. So it just kind of prompted me to go to D.C. and I ended up spending actually a good chunk of my life there. So I really enjoyed that time period. Undergrad, I went to UC Irvine, which is in California. So I studied uh, economics, political science, and art, studio art. So I was a painting and all that kind of stuff too. So did that. And then I did my graduate work in Washington, D.C. at George Washington University. And I studied public policy, urban policy. It's kind of interesting. I I, I guess the work that I do now relates to some of that, you know, uh, urban policy type work. Uh, But I really wanted to work on sort of city, low-income issues, issues dealing with uh, kind of urban blight and those things. I'm a little distant from that now. I'm not directly touching it, but I guess guess housing has a direct impact. And obviously real estate has a direct impact on the livelihood, prosperity of cities. So I guess I'm still sort of connected to it. 
right out of college, I, I was, um, I don't know how I landed this job. It was kind of, I worked for an organization called the National Community Development Association. It's a trade organization of people who are a community development directors from throughout the country. I was kind of like their housing lobbyists. I would lobby right out of college. I started lobbying on economic development issues, housing issues in DC. And that was my first full-time kind of legit job I had. I had all these little internships and like side gigs here and there, but that, I would say that was a that was the first real, real job. I mean, I, I think ultimately we could all relate to housing, not only because we live in one, but it's it's something that we talk about it, particularly as an immigrant family. I mean, that was so so important to figure out a way to get buy a house. My parents did whatever it took to get into their first home, so it was very real, and it's something that I, I think we all kind of particularly immigrants that leave their homeland, wherever you are, and you come to this country and you want to put your roots down somewhere. And having something ownership, having some connectivity to this country, I think is important. So I always felt some connection to it. Did I ever think I would be in mortgage or real estate, finance? I don't know. I'm probably not. The uh, Mortgage Collaborative is a, an organization I, along with three other individuals, started about eight years ago. The idea behind that was to bring together mortgage lenders, independent mortgage banks, community banks, credit unions together to create a kind of a collaborative environment, an open environment where they can share ideas, information, but really learn and grow with each other, right? And bring in vendors, preferred partners that could help them create more efficiency in their business. The thing that's been really great about that effort is that, you know, a lot of times we're in this business, mortgage business or any business, and we always sort of see our competitors. We see the folks across the way as a competitor. I really feel great that we've built a culture in the organization where people are more willing to share, more willing to help each other, tell each other what works and what doesn't work for their business, and so that they can kind of grow Sure, they are in some ways competitors. Sometimes they're in the same market, but they know that they have more commonality in terms of their sort of future prosperity than they have differences. So yeah, it's been great to see that. And that's been growing. We have about 230 members, I guess now, and collective origination volume last year by about 600 billion. So it's pretty significant as an organization, but it really could not have happened without really a lot of people buying into that culture of openness and sharing. So yeah, it's been, it's been great. ARIA is, you know, everyone has their passion project, right? It's an organization I started along with a number of other people 18 years ago now. And the idea was to bring together the Asian American community that are in real estate business together to help them, um, you know, not only network and learn from each other, but also to, to make sure that we actually have a clear mission of furthering home ownership for Asian American community, immigrant community. We talked about this earlier, which is this model minority myth and all of that kind of stuff that overlays everything we do as an Asian American in this country. There is this perception that somehow Asian Americans don't struggle in terms of home ownership access and all of that, which is absolutely not the case. Asian American home ownership in the beginning of 1900s was at pretty much zero. At 19, that's the only probably the only racial group where it was at zero. <laughs> Over the you know decades and you know years ahead, we we built it up, and generally because of our, our credit 
profile and income and our savings pattern, we've, we've been able to access home ownership and have been able to grow it. But it wasn't that long. It was like in the, I think in the 80s, it was like in the 40%, 45% range. It's been pushed up over the last number of decades, but we're still at sub 60% today. And so our, our view was that we have a mission to support ways to increase that. The white home ownership rate, I believe, is a little bit above 70%, like 74%, 75%. Is that the goal? You know, maybe. But all we want is to make sure that anyone who wants and who prepares for home ownership has a shot at it. And that's what we're trying to get done. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Vantage Score Solutions. This podcast is brought to you by Vantage Score Solutions, a higher level of confidence. Thanks for listening.